It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hey, thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, Pete Hayseth's going to be joining me at the bottom of the hour, right off Fox and Friends. You know him from the weekend and for filling in uh, all week long and everywhere on the channel. Also, we're going to take your calls at one 408 7669 You can get our show anytime you want, BrianKilmeadeShow.com. If you ever leave our family of affiliates and you get the podcast there, too. Uh, today is kind of exciting, and I'm being sarcastic. The new Green Deal is going to be rolled out with a big tilt towards public housing. Green New Deal style. Fantastic. What scares me is how much can be done through executive orders. I'll review some of that throughout the show. But meanwhile, we have a lot to discuss. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. This overall weakness is probably going to be a death sentence for this man because nobody in Russia is afraid of of Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. Nobody in the world is afraid of Joe Biden. And that's, that's dangerous for us here at home. Everywhere you look, the world sees weakness in our president until he proves otherwise. Iran, Russia, China, now the pullout of Afghanistan. Afghanistan has our enemies ready to test the 78-year-old. I wish I was convinced he and his team were up for the challenge, but I am not. Number two. I am prepared to compromise, prepared to see what we can do and what we can get together on. It's a big package, but there's a lot of needs. I've noticed everybody's for infrastructure. The question is, who's going to pay for it? Yeah, that's true. Are we looking at a compromise? Those are the words of the president as he tries to hash out an infrastructure deal that makes a semblance of sense for Republicans. A second bipartisan session at the White House, so I'm encouraged there. The details and how to pay for it could be where all this falls apart. But the problem for Biden, he doesn't have an option. Joe Manchin is out. Kirsten Cinema is out about getting rid of the filibuster. And Manchin doesn't want reconciliation. I predict compromise. Number one. I'm aware that Congresswoman Waters was talking specifically about this trial and talk about being confrontational. I wish elected officials would stop talking about this case, especially in a manner that is disrespectful to the rule of law and to the judicial branch in our function. You were not listening to a politician. You were listening to the judge, Peter Cahill, who used to be an aide to Senator Amy Klobuchar. This case, the Derek Chauvin case, is in the hands of the jury. Uh, Chauvin's case stands in the death of George Floyd in a way he could have any of three charges, murder two, murder three, or manslaughter. We'll discuss the details. Should a guilty verdict come, an appeal is a lock thanks to in part to the irresponsible borderline criminal actions of Maxine Troubled Waters. Not my words, the words of that judge you just heard. So Peter Cahill dismisses the jury. And gave some very diplomatic remarks. Listen, reasonable doubt. This is what it means. You've been through a lot. I know what's going on. And then the lawyer for Derek Chauvin gets up and says, I asked you, judge, to sequester the jury. And then you couldn't have known this, but I feared something like this would happen. Brooklyn Center has the, the killing of, um, of, um, of, uh, of right, of, um, of, of right. He dies when uh, mistakenly a cop mistakes there, taser for a gun, and then there's a series of nine straight days of riots. Then Maxine Waters shows up in Brooklyn Center on Saturday with paid-for armed guards. 
She goes into the middle of the fray and makes everything worse. Totally irresponsibly. Cut three. We're looking for a guilty verdict. If nothing does not happen, then we know that we've got to not only stay in the street, but we've got to fight for justice. We've got to get more confrontational. We've got to make sure that they they know that we need business. So you can imagine the defense attorney. I don't care what you think of this case. He's like, really? So you have a, a sitting congresswoman, chairman of a committee in the party in power, going into middle of this riot, riot, which it is, and making things worse, says you have to be more confrontational. So you don't think these juries are hearing about that? If I vote to acquit or murder three instead of murder two, I'm going to be responsible or perhaps feeling responsible for the burning down of city after city? On the urging of a sitting congresswoman, that prompted Peter Cahill. So as, as, the, ju- as the defense attorney brings this up, the judge looks at him and goes, you, you got a point. Cut one. Now that we have U.S. representatives uh, threatening acts of, of- of violence in relation to this specific case, it's it's mind-boggling to me, Judge. Well, I'll give you that Congresswoman Waters may have given you something on appeal that may result in this whole trial being overturned. You believe this? So, in case you think that us Democrats and Republicans, Maxine Waters, people just don't like her, it's race-related, it's California-related, no, no, and no. That's a judge who more than likely votes Democratic, who's saying... Can you leave my branch of government alone, Democrats in particular? You look at a fat in the court, pack the court, whatever, looking to evaluate how term limits, okay, not okay. And now you are down there trying to intimidate a jury like you tried to do one other time to Justice Roberts when an abortion case was in front of his uh, Supreme Court. So Maxine Waters makes these remarks. I think they're terrible. You most likely think they're terrible. But listen to how the media spins it. No big deal. Cut five. Do you really think she's calling for violence? Most people know that that's not true. And the people who are speaking out against her are using it politically. It seemed, I mean, the judges opining about whether it was appropriate or right for elected officials to talk about a trial seemed to me itself a bit inappropriate. Like, it's a free country. You can talk about whatever you want. The judge lashing out at a U.S. congresswoman, even mentioning the possibility that a verdict could be overturned in the future. I don't think that Maxine meant anything by that except to say you have to stick with it, you know, you have to be there. One little thing like this, and they jump all over her. I mean, she's a one, one congresswoman. Joy Behar either out of gas or just didn't believe a word she was saying. I'm just telling you, those comments look stupider than normal because a judge just told you a flat-out wrong, and you might have blown the whole case up. So Derek Chauvin's looking at this. He intent- did he murder two is this? He intentionally did he intentionally commit an assault? Uh, commit an assault that resulted in the unintentional death. Gets 40 years. Third degree acted with depraved indifference to human life. You see that look on his face? You see him looking around. He'll get 25 years for that. The second degree manslaughter acted with culpable negligence, which created in reasonable uh, an unreasonable death. He gets 10 years. Could serve less than three. The defense looks like this, a lengthy rebuttal. It emphasized the 17 minutes leading up to that time, suggesting that Floyd had taken illicit drugs and actively resisted when several officers tried to get him into a squad car. Chauvin's lawyer, Eric Nelson, repeatedly told jurors to look at the totality of the circumstances. If there is a a little bit of doubt, back to Maxine Waters now. By the way, here is Governor Tim Waltz. This guy, what he just said, 
makes things worse, too. Keep in mind, the jury not sequestered. Uh, and then I'll get you to Maxine Waters' ramifications for her. Cut nine. I don't think it's much of a debate. Um, you're less safe to be black in Minnesota than you are to be white right now on these things. And they're asking, are there some changes that we can make both legislatively and culturally that will start to reduce that? Yeah, fantastic. Isn't that a way to bring everybody together? Uh, so Kevin McCarthy watches this, was on primetime last night, cut six. Maxine Waters believes there's va- value in violence. This is the first time she's done something like this. Remember what she said for in the past administration, for people to get in their faces, to, 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 to challenge everyone. And now what she has said has even put doubt into a jury. You, you had a judge announce that it was wrong. I think this takes action, especially when she has a pattern of this behavior. Uh, I want to see what's going to happen, but uh, I am not optimistic anything will happen. Why? Nancy Pelosi was asked yesterday, you know, sometimes she ducks these things when they know uh, people in her caucus are wrong. One thing about Republicans, how many times did Ben Sass, Mitt Romney, now Adam Kinzinger, criticize President Trump when they didn't like something that was going on? Often. How about that? Always. You know, in, in the fiber they're beating, they know Maxine Waters at 82 years old had no reason to insert herself into that case in Brooklyn, uh, in Brooklyn Center, which is another case, but for 10, 10, uh, 10 miles away, the Derek Chauvin case. But she's trying to intimidate a jury. Totally inappropriate for an activist, let alone a city congresswoman. So Nancy Pelosi was asked, do you think that she should apologize for the confrontation remark? No, Nancy Pelosi says. Maxine talked about confrontation in the matter of the civil rights movement. Oh, really? I myself think we should take our lead from the George Floyd family. They've handled this with great dignity and no ambiguity. ambiguity. You help me there, Pete. Ambiguity. That's better. Thanks, Pete. Uh, they handled this with great dignity, with, uh, and, uh, and the misinterpretation is by the other side. No, I don't think she should apologize. How could you not say she should apologize? Can you actually show a little bit of leadership instead of partnership, uh, partisanship? So lastly, just real quick on infrastructure. I'm kind of encouraged that this is the second meeting. Mitt Romney among them today, yesterday, to talk about infrastructure. And they can probably agree on about $600, $800 billion. Then we're going to drill down and see what projects can get streamlined and passed through. Nobody talks about the last $800 billion package. There were no shovel-ready projects. There was so much so much litigation around it, the tunnels, the bridges, the roads never got done. They ended up just giving it to a lot of state houses to fund those state workers who probably were going to be out of a job because of the collapse of the economy. But I do sense that Joe Biden's got no choice. He's got to turn around and get some help because Joe Manchin made it clear he is not for reconciliation, simple 50, and he, with the vice president. And he's not for, uh, obviously, getting rid of the filibuster. He's made that clear. And what I'm more encouraged about, he put in writing in an editorial, how does he go back? Now, when it comes to the corporate tax rate, Mitt Romney says, I'm not budging at all. Now, some say that Joe Manchin would say, back off, Joe Biden, make it 25 percent from 21 percent. Don't go up to 28. But Senator uh, August King welcomed everybody there. Uh, He is from Maine. Cut 21. There are various options on the table, and I think, I mean, you know, I'm a perennial optimist, but there was a mood in the room that 
we got to do this, and we really ought to figure out how to do it. And I think the president genuinely wants to do it on a bipartisan basis rather than ramming through on reconciliation or uh, some some other uh, sort of simple majority right. uh, proposal. But both sides have to come to right. the table. All right, here are the, uh, here are the Republicans that got there. Congressman Kay Granger was there out of Texas. Uh, Congress, uh, Congressman Carlos Jimenez uh, out of Florida was there, invited and showed Mitt Romney of Utah. Of course, uh, then we have Senator John Hoven of North Dakota uh, showed up. John Hickenlooper, before he became senator, was looked at as a bipartisan guy. He hasn't really done talk much like that yet. Congressman Charlie Crist, the former governor, uh, now a Democrat, was a Republican of Florida, uh, was there. Uh, Norma Torres was also there out of California. Senator uh, Hickenlooper, as I mentioned. So that basically is the 10 that showed up for the meeting. There was a sense that they want to get something done. I think if it's close, they'll do it. But if Joe Biden punts and just says, oh, they don't want to cooperate, he'll never get this again. They're going to put their heads down and just try to win everything in the midterm. So we'll take a we'll talk about that. And I do want to talk about the foreign policy. It might not be the most sensational story, but when you have 150,000 Russian troops on the Ukrainian border, when you asked, when you told two, two U.S. destroyers to turn around and they did, when you begged to get back into the Iranian talks in uh, in Vienna yesterday, and they basically allow you to talk to them through third party, this after the Nakans. Nuclear site was blown up mysteriously, we think, by the Israelis, and they don't really deny it. They still are talking. To me, I smell weakness. Maybe I'm not judging him fairly. You tell me if I'm wrong or right. one 408 7669 We'll talk about that uh, and so much more. You listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Honest commentary. Unique opinions. No agenda. It's Brian Kilmeade. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. The problem is that Putin's looking at Biden uh, through a bigger lens. 
Uh, we're withdrawing from Afghanistan against sound military advice. We're trying to get back into the Iranian nuclear agreement, and the Iranians are threatening to enrich at 60 percent. You need 90 percent to get a bomb. The Chinese are pushing us around out in Asia. The border's completely out of control. So what Putin's looking at is, in his mind, a weak adversary. What did Putin say uh, when Biden called him a killer? The next time we talk, I want it to be on live TV. Uh, meet me there because I don't think you can stand up to me. Mm -hmm. So this overall weakness is probably going to be a death sentence for this man because nobody in Russia is afraid of, of Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. Nobody in the world is afraid of Joe Biden. And mm -hmm. that's that's dangerous for us here at home. And, and you know, think about it. In North Korea, as crazy as that guy was and as rough as that start was, it was almost comical when he called him Rocket Man and everything like that. Um, he was not shooting off a bunch of rockets for the next four years. And, of course, the summit was a disaster. He has, there was no pledge to get rid of nuclear weapons and that we had no plan B, so we just left. I think that was Vietnam. But Russia and the Ukraine, let's begin there. Uh, we understand, according to satellite images, there's now 150,000 Russian military troops amassing on the border of Ukraine. The State Department said Monday that the U.S. Ambassador to Russia, John Sullivan, after initially saying he wouldn't leave Russia, will now be returning to the United States this week before returning to Moscow in the coming weeks. Why it matters? The statement from a State Department spokesperson comes just hours after Axios reported that Sullivan had indicated he intended to stand his ground and stay in Russia. You know what? We should try to get John Huntsman on. He knows what it's like for China. He knows what it's like for Russia. Uh, also, uh, the problem with Donald Trump is he doesn't just have a problem there. He's got a problem everywhere. What you do is if you have leverage with China, you can use that leverage for Iran and North Korea. Right now, all we do is he's going at it with all these guys in a half-baked a series of policies, whether it's going off your hip saying that Vladimir Putin's got no soul or is a killer, and here are ten, I'm going to expel 10 diplomats. And you may think that if that's your strategy, but then don't turn around and say, oh, by the way, do you want to have a summit? Of course the answer is no. A summit after Alexei Navalny dies, the dissident who is on a hunger strike because he isn't allowed to get medical attention for two herniated discs. He's got no feeling in his hand. He's got no feeling in his foot. And now they gave him a doctor, but it might be too late. So Lindsey Graham goes on uh, to talk about what we're looking at around the world. Cut 28. At the end of the day, every bully on the planet feels emboldened. All of our allies are very worried about the United States. The Abraham Accords in the Mideast was a great breakthrough where the Arabs and the Israelis were working together because America led the way against a common enemy called Iran. I've never seen so much deterioration of our national security in such a short period of time as I do right now. On multiple fronts, Ben, America is weaker and the world is more dangerous. And I blame Joe Biden and Tony Blinken for this mm -hmm. so far. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Yeah, so far, and also asking the Defense Department to look at itself and stand down to make sure there's no bias amongst the ranks, reinstating transgender therapy. You really think that's a priority in the world we live in right now? I totally believe that the turning over Afghanistan to the Taliban is now inevitable as we leave. 
And because of that, I think leaving Afghanistan is flat out a huge mistake. As H.R. McMaster said, we're not in a hot war. 2,000 troops give us presence and intelligence. As you even Michael Gerson, a big critic of President Trump, came out, a writer for George W. Bush, said this is going to be a big mistake. You will have nobody standing by you, Joe Biden. Believe me, when Afghanistan, if Afghanistan goes to the Taliban, and I laugh when people say, well, we still have the embassy there. Are we going to keep the embassy going if the Taliban take back control of the country? And the people say, well, the Taliban doesn't want, don't want to be uh, pariahs around the world. Like they cared the first time. Pete Hegg says back. By the way, Pete totally disagrees with me. He wants us out of Afghanistan. Back in a moment. Brian Kilmeade Show. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. This is something that people in my community have been grappling with for a very long time. It's not safe to drive uh, in Minnesota while you're black. I mean, the fact of the matter is there's so many of us who drive, you know, and, and, and if we see uh, police behind us, we're, we're afraid. You know, we're trembling. And that is a, a kind of terror that no, no, citizens of the United, no citizen of the United States should ever have to face. It's, it's constant. It's ever-present. It's time for a reckoning. It's time for us as a country to come together and once and for all resolve this problem. Well, is that the truth? I am not on the ground in Minneapolis in the state of Minnesota. That was Mayor Mike Elliott that is, though. He's the mayor of Brooklyn Center in Minnesota. And Pete Hegseth joins us now from Minnesota uh, in studio, but actually grows up there, lives up there. You still live there now part-time. Fox and Friends uh, weekend calls, but he's just fresh off Fox and Friends. He's going to be doing a hit in America's newsroom shortly uh, and author American Crusade. Pete, is he right? Uh, No, I don't believe that. Uh, listen, he has a different experience than I had gr- growing up in Minnesota, but are the police, many of which I know very well, in places like Brooklyn Center, St. Paul, Minneapolis, Forest Lake, where I grew up, systemically racist, looking for black men to pull over to profile? Absolutely not. Uh, if if you are a criminal who has a warrant out for your arrest, black or white in Minnesota, then you should be on the lookout and you should be trembling. And that's the feeling you ought to have. But if you're abiding by the laws, especially in a state like Minnesota— Minnesota nice is a thing for a reason. They're not looking for a reason to target black people. If anything, it's as welcoming a state as as you can possibly imagine in the union. And it doesn't this this myth, this lie that there is systemic racism behind every uniform, especially in the state of Minnesota, is perpetuated by comments like that at a moment when we don't need comments like that. Police can do better. In certain circumstances, there's calls that are made that are difficult. But to say that it's it's racism behind every flashing light doesn't help anybody. Oh, uh, the mayor, I thought, has been terrible. I mean, when I watch him sit there with the half uh, half baked answers to all these questions in press conferences that are full of activists, not yep. press members. I mean, I don't see many cutaways of them, but I say these questions are all people with a point of view screaming at him and screaming at the now fired police chief. The mayor basically gets rid of the city planner because he came out and said due process. That's your that's your state. So anyone who came out and said we want to follow the process and give due process was canned. Yeah. 
immediately. And they were activists in that. Listen, it is it is my state, and here's one reality that you you don't think of Minnesota in the same basket as Portland or Seattle or New York City, but it is. It is a completely blue, dark blue, left wing city in Minneapolis. The mayor there, they uh, you know call him uh, graduate student, baby mayor J- Jacob Fry. Totally unprepared for the situation. Uh, totally he awful. He has no idea. He, he got elected to reimagine green spaces in Minneapolis and put in bike paths and, you know, all the new metro stuff of the of the 21st century. Then real life smacked him, and he he was on all sides of the issue, afraid of the mob, then stood up for the police a little bit, and then he was all in for defunding the police, totally in over his head, which is part of the reason why there's so much uncertainty. I just got off the radio with some friends uh, in Minneapolis right now reporting on it. The place is on edge because they know leadership's not going to handle it the way they should. Right. I, is burning it down what, what is inevitable? I hope not, but that's what it feels like. It does feel like that. So we, we, you and I were talking on Fox and Friends and even on the breaks late yesterday looking at the inappropriateness of Maxine Waters' comments. And you think he's just going to die there. And then after the jury was told you can leave, now I have to talk to the attorneys. What are your final thoughts? And the judge gives his speech, and the defense attorney gets up and basically – uh, says this. I'm aware of the media reports. I'm aware that Congresswoman Waters was talking specifically about this trial and about the unacceptability of uh, anything less than a murder conviction and talk about being confrontational. But you can submit the press articles about that. This goes back to what I've been saying from the beginning. I wish elected officials would stop talking about this case, especially in a manner that is disrespectful to the rule of law and to the judicial branch in our function. I think if they want to give their opinions, they should do so in a respectful and in a manner that is consistent with their oath to the Constitution to respect a co-equal branch of government. Their failure to do so, I think, is abhorrent. And may have set him up, and he goes on to say, we may have set up your case for appeal. Yeah, it was an amazing piece of TV because the jury had – we even cut away from it. We thought it was over. Uh, then on we the came, five, right? On the five. Then they came back to the coverage and didn't really know what this process conversation would be. In fact, Chauvin's attorney, Eric Nelson, didn't even bring up Maxine Waters by name, said a congresswoman or a congressman. Then the judge proactively did. And as you pointed out on the show this morning, Brian, this is not a conservative judge. This is a judge who in the past has been affiliated with Democrats, including Senator Amy Klobuchar. His his uh, sermon about implicit bias didn't uh, sound much like a conservative, yet his willingness to call out a left-wing liberal member of Congress for, for, for muddying the waters on a trial where, say what you want about Derek Chauvin, he deserves a fair trial, and the jury had not been sequestered. So maybe they've seen that coverage. And if you're staring down a mob, should you not be one of 12 jurors to agree? That's a scary prospect. Yeah, so how scary? Well, listen to this legal expert on another channel. Wait in. After he heard the judge say what he said, um, he weighed in. Um, and this is a guy from CNN... Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Let's go to. Yeah, let's go to uh, Marco Mera. He is a criminal defense attorney represented uh, Zimmerman. Remember, in the Trayvon Mm -hmm. Martin case, cut 13. To have an elected official come in and say must be a conviction does exactly what the judge said it did. It really puts the entire case at risk because. We want our jurors so pristine as best we can, but we try and keep them away from those undue influences because we know it has to only come from the evidence and argument in the courtroom. And yet you have somebody who just on regular TV 
On CNN, trying to stay away from coverage of the trial, a juror sitting there, an elected official comes in and goes, guilty, guilty, guilty. It is an undue influence. It is, it's a lack of respect for the judicial system. It's great politics. It's not good law. That's a great point. What are you going to do? Uh, but let's see what's going to happen. So what is your prediction here before we move on? I thought in watching all the closing arguments yesterday, both sides made their best possible case. And I, I think the defense introduced a substantial amount of reasonable doubt based on what a reasonable officer might do. I don't there's I don't think there's any way he, he doesn't probably end up with manslaughter at the very least. But the second degree murder charge would be is, is questionable right now. And that's that's, I think, what uh, what people will be paying the most attention to. It could go either way in that context. I think he'll be pinned with something, but ultimately it may not be all three. Do you think that they overuse the video, the nine and a half minutes? Because if many people were shocked that defense used the video so much, they thought they'd run from that. But they want trying to say that they were trying to show some compassion in the back seat. He's like, I can't go in the back seat. I'm claustrophobic. I'll sit back there with you. So, and they had a normal exchange prior to Derek Chauvin showing up. First of all, the state couldn't have used it too much. I mean, they used it over and over and over again, and rightfully so. I thought the defense used it really effectively yesterday. I was surprised how much they did. But the defense used videotape differently. The defense used videotape from body cameras, whereas the state used a lot more of the video from uh people watching on the on the sidewalk what's your perspective of what's happening the video we see on tv all the time of Derek Chauvin with his knee what we now know is on his shoulder or back not neck but that's been part of the deliberation the defense used the body cam video at each point because Chauvin wasn't there for a big portion of it until he got there to show as a reasonable officer here's what you're seeing as a reasonable officer here's what you're hearing as a reasonable officer this is the resisting you're feeling as a reasonable officer you've called the EMS you believe they're on their way as a reasonable officer you're engaging with the crowd are they hostile are they not and I related to it as an infantry officer who has been second-guessed and seen other cases where people are second-guessed. Videotape's easy to dissect afterwards. Oftentimes in the moment, you may think you're taking a reasonable action, which later on doesn't look reasonable. That's what the defense introduced, I think, effectively. Whether or not it'll get them off, who knows? But the use of videotape, it was a Interesting piece of jujitsu because you didn't see it coming. I thought they did it pretty effectively. Right. A lot of experts. And what time do you have to be on television? In a few minutes. Don't worry. Yeah, a few minutes. I want to just talk about Afghanistan quick because we watched uh, President Ghani of Afghanistan on with Fareed Zakaria, followed by H.R. McMaster, who came on with us yesterday, too. And Anthony Blinken was on defending this move, as well as Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor. Uh, Anthony Blinken basically is accepting that the Taliban are going to take over and Americans should brace themselves. Cut 32. If the Taliban has any expectation of getting any international acceptance, of not being treated as a pariah, it's going to have to respect uh, the rights of women and girls. Any uh, country that moves backwards on that, that tries to repress them, will not have that international recognition, will not have that international status, and indeed, uh, we will take action to, uh, uh, to make sure, to the best of our ability, that they can't do that. Pete, you were over there in Afghanistan, and keep in mind, Anthony Blinken is basically saying the 20 years of war to keep the Taliban at bay and destroy them. They left him back, came back in Pakistan, got fully armed by uh, forces, anti-American forces. And now, basically, he's saying they're going to turn them over, turn the country over to the Taliban? I mean, that statement is absolute nonsense. Like, they care about being a pariah? Not it's one the Taliban. bit would they care. We, we, and you and I disagree on this a little bit, and we can. 
but you can be clear-eyed about who the Taliban are and what, what their prerogatives are. When I was there in 2011, 2012, they were already preparing for a post-American future. They were already psychologically in charge of most of the provinces with shadow governments, shadow security forces through threat and intimidation, and the national government, which was never national at all, national security forces, which were never viable at all because there's no history of that in Afghanistan, are no match for this organic uh, group that is the Taliban. Brian, in a world of infinite resources, I would say we, we should continue there. We don't have infinite resources, and we have a growing threat from the communist Chinese. And I think the longer we expend strategic energy there, uh, the, the more distracted we are from bigger ones. So I support the, the, the move to end uh, the existence in Afghanistan. And all but influence clear, in the region? But I'm clear. I don't think we lose in. We have plenty of other places we can project where? power from. UAE, other other air bases where we can project power from. A place from. to be able to see China, Russia, and Pakistan and collect intelligence. We're so good at seeing Pakistan, we couldn't stop and come over the border for the we last We didn't try for some reason. Yeah, I mean, we, we could. I mean, this border is so porous and so big. I say let Russia have at it. Let someone else deal with that mess over there. Because Afghanistan, it's it's not tenable, the project that we were on for so long. Even though we were there for 20 years and you have a Especially government there? Especially because we were there for 20 years and they still can't stand on their feet. And by the way, so for 20 years you had uh, people grow up, uh, especially women grow up with a chance to read, write, and assert themselves and get out of the Stone Ages, and the Taliban's not even popular. I think that's a wonderful thing. That That is a hopeful aspect of it, is maybe a generation of women and girls who can be a resistance to the Taliban. You're right. That's that's part of a residual failure, is if we do leave, when we do leave, the Taliban will crush a lot of the gains that we made. Are those gains worth it to keep a presence there forever? That's the question. Yeah, here's H.R. McMaster, General H.R. McMaster, cut 38. Well, I think it's an utter disaster for Reid, and I think what's worth pointing out is that we are engaged in an extraordinary degree of self-delusion, what I call in battleground strategic narcissism, the tendency to define the world only in relation to us and assume that what we do is decisive toward achieving a favorable outcome. And this self-delusion about the Taliban includes this idea, you know, that the Taliban really wants to share power. The Taliban, Reid, is determined to reimpose the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. And we know the hell that would be for the Afghan people and the world because they did it between 1996 and, and 2001. And they'll say they beat two people. They beat two superpowers, the Soviets and the Americans. And they'd be right. I mean, the, self, the self-delusion... Doesn't have to be that way. When I listen to that... When I listen to that clip, the only self-delusion is the idea that for, we're going to remake Afghanistan. Not going to happen. They have no history of central governments. No, Their, their military has been selling weapons to Pakistan since I was there. They, if we're not backing them up, they fold in 10 minutes. So you mean the long, current government? The, the current government. government, the current national security forces. And that's okay? That's not viable. So, so how long do we prop them up? For how long? Because we get an advantage, strategic advantage of the area, the same way North Korea doesn't I, invade the South I Korea because that, we're there. I think that Germany, we have troops in Germany, therefore the Russians who are, are we not in Germany. From taking Afghanistan, let them have Afghanistan. Why do we want Afghanistan? We want influence in that area, uh, absolutely, and we know it's going to be a terror haven the minute we go. It's always has been. But Iran's a terror haven, too. Right. And Iran goes right in, getting more influence, as does China. I mean, we can't be in every terror haven. But with 2,000 guys having lost two in two years. That's the one argument I'm empathetic to. The one argument I'm empathetic to is a tiny footprint 
to maintain intelligence, to, to continue to prevent the absolute extremists from taking over, I could be okay with that. But with, I'm also, and with NATO I'm almost, doubling our forces? I'm almost ambivalent, Brian. I, I'm being totally honest with you. 20 years, a lot, of, a lot of effort, having worked with the Afghans, their ability to maintain that effort is meh. It's not there at all. So how long do we expend to almost to very little return on investment? A couple thousand, I could be fine with that. But a couple thousand to the Pentagon and to a future president means 10,000. That means 20,000. So you're always going up and you're going down. I think at some point you cut your losses, and Afghanistan's one of those places. Right. I just think also what we've known about al-Qaeda, being able to unwind about al-Qaeda and ISIS by being there is unquantifiable. In terms of intelligence, be able to reassemble that organization, watch them happen. And with the uh, airstrikes we were able to make, we are able to balance things out by airstrikes. Which, where are we based? I mean, we could we're still be on airstrikes. aircraft carriers? Uh, yeah, or UAE, Dubai. There are plenty of other places where we've got military presence where you can project power from. Yeah, I'm, but, I'm, I just can't. To me, it's an unforced. It, to me, it's a total unforced It could unforced be. You error. could be right. Um, listen, when we come back, uh, Pete will be gone. I'll be gone. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Pete will watch you tomorrow, right? But I'll see you in the morning. And we'll watch you on America's Newsroom. Correct. In 10 minutes. Yes. All right. If Thanks I so there. much. See back you. with you guys in just a moment. Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. We're going to make sure that these opportunities are equally available to women as well as men. Because there's an interesting fact, in case you didn't know, hard hats are actually unisex. <laughs> Everybody's laughing. Nobody was laughing. Uh, that was a terrible joke. Uh, she has a terrible sense of humor. That's the only thing I can assume, but she talks very little. Matt in North Carolina. Hey, Matt. Hello, Brian. Nice to hear your voice again. Well, thanks Enjoy for listening. Thank you very much. Thank you. What's on uh, your mind? As far as Maxine Waters, I heard this... Uh, talk about having her expelled and go away? No, she should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law for, for promoting rioting. A U.S. congresswoman? This is insane, Brian. It is. It absolutely is. And these people are outraged that the president gave a speech and he said that he was part of the insurrection. He never told anyone to go and take the, uh, take the Capitol building. Uh, and now she is one of his biggest critics, wants him impeached. Remember, impeach 45. Impeach 45. And she goes down there at 82 years old where you think she would know better after everything that she has seen up close and personal in South Central. Who asked her to go anyway? Who needs Maxine Waters in Minnesota? Who needs her in the government, Brian? Oh, I know. Listen, I hear you. I I think she's an embarrassment. They told Chad Pergram, who's our great constitutional, uh, uh, you know, the congressional reporter, he came out and said that uh, Democrats are telling him they are outraged by our behavior and what she did, but they won't go on camera, so they're gutless. Nobody had any problem on the right going after Trump when they didn't agree with him, but on the left, they close ranks and pretend like she's okay. She's not. Go to BrianKillMe.com or any of my history books, put it all in perspective, including Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers. <laughs> Everybody's laughing. 
Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. We'll come to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world. Uh, privilege to have with us shortly Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis. Made a real impact already in Washington, just there about 100 days. David Harsani will be with us, too, senior writer for the National Review, New York Post's syndicated columnist. He's talking about what is real and what is not about what's happening with big tech and the news that they're holding back from Hunter Biden. Black Lives Matter story. Uh, that was taken off because the CEO of Black Lives Matter got five houses and took a vow of Marxism as uh, her creed, which means you're not really supposed to be doing that, I don't think. But that didn't stop big tech from taking it down. Also, uh, how the Biden administration had ended a, a simulation and makes uh, the mistake, uh, the same mistake as the Europeans have. Wrote a great column. I want his perspective on that. Then we're going to do a simulcast with Stuart Varney on FBN. So that'll be great. Always is. We'll talk about Maxine Waters, Trump 2024, and so much more. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. This overall weakness is probably going to be a death sentence for this man because nobody in Russia is afraid of uh, Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Nobody in the world is afraid of Joe Biden. And that's that's dangerous for us here at home. I would think so. Lindsey Graham says it like it is. Everywhere you look, the world seems a weak president until he proves otherwise. Iran, Russia, China, and now the pullout of Afghanistan has our enemies ready to test. The 78-year-old, I wish I was convinced he and his team were up for the challenge, but I am not. Number two. I am prepared to compromise, prepared to see what we can do and what we can get together on. It's a big package, but there's a lot of needs. I've noticed everybody's for infrastructure. The question is, who's going to pay for it? Are we looking at a compromise? Those are the words of the president as he tries to hash out an infrastructure deal that makes a semblance of sense with Republicans. A second bipartisan session at the White House has me encouraged. The details of how to pay for it has me discouraged. But we'll see. I think the president knows he needs Republicans for this. Number one. I'm aware that Congresswoman Waters was talking specifically about this trial and talk about being confrontational. I wish elected officials would stop talking about this case especially in a manner that is disrespectful to the rule of law and to the judicial branch in our function. That is Judge Peter Cahill, hardly a right-wing extremist or a conservative judge. But now this case is in the hands of the jury. Just what Derek Chauvin will be doing and how he stands to get murder two or murder three in relation to George Floyd's death, we'll see. Uh, Should a guilty verdict come, an appeal is a lock thanks to Maxine Waters. Yep, not my words, the words of the judge that you just heard. Uh, now a colleague of that congresswoman, but she's from Los Angeles. My guest is from New York, Nicole Maliotakis with us. Congresswoman, were you shocked when you first heard, saw the video of Maxine Waters in a place thousands of miles from where she reigns in California in the middle of this riot calling for more action? 
You know, and, and, and the interesting thing is she's there protesting the police, and uh, she requested a police detail to accompany her on the visit. Uh, the hypocrisy that we're seeing coming out of the left, whether it be that uh, or it be Nancy Pelosi having double standards as it relates to censoring uh, members or taking them off committees, is really uh, something that I think the American people just need to look at and say, uh, you know, th- this is clear hypocrisy. Leader McCarthy is going to be putting forward a resolution uh, to censor her, and I'm going to be supporting that resolution. And I think this is about a matter of consistency and ensuring that uh, we take action when a member of Congress goes to a city that is already suffering with small businesses being destroyed, people's livelihoods under attack. Uh, when you have the, the type of destruction that we're seeing in cities across America through arson, through looting, through violence, uh, and then to encourage more confrontation, uh, I think that was unconscionable and is certainly not becoming of a member of Congress who should be really focused on trying to bring this country together. I know, but it's not. They're not. And, uh, and for her to get away with this, Nancy Pelosi says she has no problem with this. Now, Chad Pergram saying that Democrats uh, on the QT are saying they're outraged that she did this. Have you talked to and you might not be in Washington since Monday. So I'm just asking off the top. Have you talked to any Democrats that, that feel like she was out of line? Well, I haven't talked to them specifically about this issue, but I will say that they will, they will be put on the line uh, when this resolution comes up. And if they're outraged, they're going to have that opportunity to show it. And remember, Nancy Pelosi right now can't lose three votes. She Three votes go with us, then she's going to be censured. And so I think that that's the important thing that the American people who are listening right now to please call their member of Congress and demand that they vote for this resolution uh, and it's going to put them in a very difficult position. But if they truly feel what they've yeah. been saying uh, to others in the background, uh, then this is going to be their opportunity to show it. Congresswoman, have you noticed, I mean, you can almost taste the majority. I know you just got there, but you've been in politics a while. You can almost, you're right there on the precipice of retiring Nancy Pelosi because of some open seats and retirements. It's really two or three seats right now. And now that so, so-called Problem Solvers Caucus really matters because it's got Democrats on it. Yeah, look, the, the Democrats have the slimmest majority since World War II. And I do believe that we will take back the House you in 2022 to. by just pointing at what the Democrats have been doing, whether it be uh, trying to use your taxpayer money to fund their political campaigns with H.R. 1, trying to ban voter IDs from being used in states, uh, whether it be attacking our police and trying to take away their resources and the tools, uh, which is a, another bill that we recently uh, took up, uh, whether it be packing, attempting to pack the court following the steps of what Hugo Chavez did in Venezuela that completely destroyed the nation uh, and, and using the courts to, 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 to rule 45,000 times in his favors. Uh, you know, these are the things that I think scare the American people. Look at the border crisis. You know, the fact that the cartels are running the border, and I was just down there with Representative Scalise, uh, and the CBP has their hands tied. And we see a 15-year high of illegal migration, 175,000 individuals in the month of March. Uh, and, 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 and the cartels are making half a billion dollars a month, uh, not only exploiting individuals, but also as they're, they're sort of keeping the CBP busy, distracting them, they're passing gun, uh, they're trafficking guns, they're trafficking thousands of pounds of, of drugs, and, and from everything from cocaine to heroin to fentanyl. 
um, and people as well. And so, you know, these are the things that as long as our job right now is to expose what the Democrats are doing, expose what they are doing with the hopes that the American people paying attention for 2022, but also so the Senate doesn't take up these radical pieces of legislation. There's this picture during the Trump years of this little girl crying while uh, their mom is maybe being talked to by the Border Patrol, and it looks like she's being abandoned. That picture was used by Democrats, and then pictures from 2014 saying it was Trump's era, putting kids in cages, was used, and it really hurt the president at the midterms. But he wasn't putting kids in cages. What he was trying to do is everything possible to stop the surge, the surge of illegal aliens coming to our border. This president's not even trying Listen to what Jen Psaki said yesterday, and then I want to get your take of what you saw in the Donna facility in Texas. Cut 45. The president does not feel that children coming to our border seeking refuge from violence, economic hardships, and other dire circumstances is a crisis. He does feel that the crisis in Central America, the dire circumstances that many are fleeing from, that he that that is a situation we need to spend our time, our effort on, and we need to address it if we're going to prevent more of an influx of uh, migrants from coming in years to come. He says the crisis in Central America not turning around kids. Does he really think we're that stupid, knowing that if you say kids can come, parents are going to send them there with the cartel members, with these uh, traffickers, and put their lives at risk, many of which will lose their lives and will never know it? Does he under- Does he think we're going to buy that? You know, you know, I would ask uh, Jen Psaki one question. We saw a nine-year-old girl at this border, and a Border Patrol agent told one of my colleagues that she had been gang-raped. This woman, this little girl had been gang-raped, um, and she lost her vocal cords as a result. Okay, is that a crisis? Is it a crisis that, you know, so many of the women that take this journey are raped and abused? You know, the, the, these, these, these uh Shack set up these shacks that are set up in our country by these smugglers that are set up secretly in, in areas where you know and they ha- and it's completely inhumane conditions that they're keeping people there to then be sold to involuntary servitude into sex trafficking is that not a crisis I mean this is the party that claims to be the champion of children they they claim to be the champion of women and they are turning a blind eye. To what is occurring if they go down there and talk to cbp as we did hear what we heard see what we saw and, and learn about these facilities that these, these shacks that are being set up by the cartels and the smugglers to then sell people into trafficking you know i don't know how they can say that that is not a crisis and then and then the fact that they have encountered uh they've encountered drug dealers they've encountered ms-13 gang members they have encountered uh terrorists on the fbi watch list you know, thousands of convicted criminals who had been previously deported and tried re-entering our nation. And that's only who they were able to encounter at some of these open borders. Because remember, they're being diverted now. They're being diverted to oversee children in facilities, to process asylum claims. And and so CBP is limited in how much border they can actually patrol. Uh, And and so it is a national security issue as well. And all this, by the way, in a public health crisis, right? They quote, so the administration is keeping the northern border closed between Canada and the United States, no non-essential travel. Yet this, what's happening at the border, if you go and see these facilities, the Donna facility, 4,000 people in a facility that's capacity is 250. Did you just see kid on top of kids? Can you describe it for us? Yes. In fact, if people go to my Twitter, they can see some of the video that I put up of these children uh, you know, who are basically sleeping, uh, you know, next, right next to each other. Uh, and, and they are cramped in these bubbles. So they're not 
I guess, cages, as the Democrats would say, but they are these like these bubble type facilities that are meant for, let's say, 33 kids. They're pods. They're meant for 33 people. They have over 100 kids crammed in there. The facility itself has a capacity of 250. They had 4,000 people there. And they're from 60 different countries. It's not just Central America. The, the, the president has sent a worldwide message by repealing the, the, it, the policies put in place by President Trump, the migrant protocols, the stay in Mexico, all of that. By repealing it, he sent a message to the world. And now 60 different countries were represented at this one particular facility. And guess what? None of them are being COVID tested. Many of them display the symptoms of COVID. They right. have fever. They have other symptoms. But they aren't tested until they're leaving this facility. They get a total pass in which on then this. HHS is putting them on planes with other individuals. And where are they going? A lot of them going to Brentwood, Long Island, and I've seen a lot of them uh, there. They get put into lower middle class homes in many cases who get paid sponsorship money to put them into school systems that are already overburdened and underfinanced. And it's a bad situation that's going on around the country. And it's going under the radar. Uh, meanwhile, quick thing about New York, Governor Cuomo's got some book problems. He evidently was using his staff to write the book. He got $4 million to not write the book. He said he gave his staff the book to review for accuracy. Listen to this. You will see everything you want to see uh, in, the, uh, in the personal income taxes. Some people uh, volunteered to review the book, I wanted to make sure that it represented uh, what they did and the facts correctly. So does that excuse it? The attorney general reportedly is going to start investigating whether he used his staff to write a book in the middle of a pandemic, which is mind-boggling. And then he promoted it, which is nuts. Then we get hit with the second wave. And then we get to all the nursing home thing hits mainstream media and it becomes a huge deal. And then we know about the nine accusers that have said he, he had uh, sexually harassed them. And the investigation that's going on. I know you're thinking national, but you're still representing New York. What are you hearing about this? How has he still got a job? Yeah, well, you know, just to, to bring it back to what we were saying at the beginning of the show, it, it's a double standard. You know, and I know, that if this were a Republican governor, that he would have been driven out of town a long time ago. But somehow, some way, uh, somebody like Governor Cuomo, who put in place policies that led to the deaths of thousands of individuals— even when there were alternative places like the Javits Center and, um, and the U.S. Navy Comfort Ship, you know, then you have the sexual, um, uh, sexual uh, harassment charges on top of that. But that, that was never the reason why I said he should resign initially, and I do believe he, there, the investigation needs to continue independently on that. But it's the nursing home situation that there's no excuse for that he should have resigned the fact that there was a cover-up. Uh, and, and, and his own chief of staff admitted to it. And look, the DOJ does have an investigation ongoing. The FBI is also investigating, and we have to let this play out. But clearly, there's multiple investigations happening here, uh, whether it be the state legislature, which is doing uh, supposedly some type of uh, impeachment uh, commission, which we don't know if that's just nonsense coming out of state assembly like a lot of, a lot of stuff is. Um, or we have the attorney general also investigating the sexual harassment uh, claims. We have the FBI and the DOJ involved in the nursing home. So, and now you have this stuff with the book. I mean, you know, the, the idea that he was writing a it's book amazing. instead of putting together a plan uh, and how to deal with what we were dealing with at that moment. Remember, it was, it was in the middle, the height of COVID. It wasn't after, you know, when th the numbers had dropped down. So it is, it is truly upsetting that he would use 
state resources or state time or even, you know, his own time when he should have been leading the state of New York and right. getting us through this crisis and making sure nursing homes, hospitals and everyone had what they needed to be able to get through this. And so I, I think that, look, at the end of the day, the majority of New Yorkers do not want him to run for reelection. Uh, and so if he's not going to resign. Uh, you, know, oh, you might run. Is it true? You might run. Me? No, I'm, I'm, I'm not running for sure. I could tell you that. Okay. <laughs> um, but Lee but Zeldin's what I will in. Say is that I do believe that the Republicans will have a very strong candidate, and I know that Congressman Lee Zeldin has announced that he's running, and I think he's a very viable candidate, and and, and he can also take from Long Island, maximize the vote in Long Island that would be needed to win. And uh, also the American Jewish vote in Manhattan. I know they're impressed with him, and he's also his service will certainly help, uh, and he's a fighter. Uh, Congressman Nicole Miley-Takis, you also are a fighter. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Great to be with you. You got it. Uh, Back in a moment with your calls. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first, only on The Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. It's harder to imagine anything more inappropriate than a member of Congress flying in from California to inform local leaders, not so subtly, that this defendant had better be found guilty or else there'll be big trouble in the streets. And it was totally irresponsible, even brought up by the judge yesterday, Frank Lisson, WTRW in Pennsylvania. Hey, Frank. Hi, Brian. How are you today? Good. What's Listen, on your mind? I, I'm, I'm very concerned about I understand, like, with, with Cuomo, the New York news media obviously is sharing the things that need to be shared about his ridiculous uh, leadership. But nationally, there's so much, uh, you know, censorship in the newspapers and social media. I, I'm curious why you're confident that, that America will, I don't know, swing back or pendulum back from the ridiculous left-leaning, egregious leadership that we have. And even from the standpoint of the election, how many people even heard about Trump's concerns about the election? It really isn't, it, it's, it's kept from the public. There's no question. And okay, granted, Fox talks about it. I, I don't listen to Newsmax, but I imagine they do. You certainly do. Other, you hear what other people on the, on the news, uh, on the radio talk about it. But I don't think the, the viewership or listenership is large enough in the conservative area to, for lack of a better word, infiltrate the minds of the left, because I don't think they hear that. We'll see. I mean, right now we're in definitely a a sense of flux, but I think it's fascinating that Republicans are raising more money than ever before without any corporate support, without the Hollywood, without the mass media, without the tech center. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. The president does not feel that children coming to our border seeking refuge from violence, economic hardships, and other dire circumstances is a crisis. He does feel that the crisis in Central America, the dire circumstances that many are fleeing from, that he that, that is a situation we need to spend our time, our effort on, and we need to address it if we're going to prevent 
more of an influx of uh, migrants from coming in years to come. So does that show a big heart or does it show a lack of America first? Uh, David Harsani joins us now. Uh, David's a senior writer for The Nash Review, New York Post syndicated columnist. Uh, David, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I always appreciate it. Hey, uh, listen, David, right away, we got to change our language. We can't say illegal aliens now. We have to use all different language. You can't say unaccompanied minors. That's not going to work anymore. Is this going to make any sense? You focus on the word assimilation. That's also old news. Right, yeah. The uh, Biden administration says not to use that word anymore, and it's an incredibly important word if we're going to have immigration. I mean, my parents were immigrants, and the the key to being a good immigrant in this country and for to work is that we assimilate people. We don't, uh, you know, we want them to become, to accept American norms, to accept liberal ideas, to leave bad ideas behind. And I guess these days that's somehow offensive, but I'm not sure if, if those ideas were working, why would people want to come here in the first place? Yeah, where it was told melting pot, that was uh, incumbent on any talk of immigration. But you say getting rid of a legal alien is all part of Democrats' longtime aversion to the innocuous, inaccurate uh, alien. They want people to get used to illegals being here legally and not being having such a problem with it. Well, legal, illegal alien is just a legal term, right? It's illegal means, you know, being doing something against the law. An alien just means something, someone from another country. Um, they want they want to normalize the idea or destigmatize the idea of it being illegal. You know, people are just coming here for this reason or that reason. And I, listen, I, I'm sympathetic. I know that they're coming here for good reasons. But if you have a system that's basically anarchy that allows people just to come and go when we don't know them. That's not good for them. It's certainly not good for us or the country. I'm pro-immigration. I just want to control who comes and goes. We can't just have people skipping and cutting line and, and doing whatever they want, if kids or not not kids. We have to control that situation. But why, David? Why, why do you think that that isn't something we all can agree on? We used to. I mean, it was only in, I think, 2006 it was where Chuck Schumer was a co-sponsor on a bill that, to build a wall at the border. Um, I think that, uh, you know, there are cultural reasons for it. But frankly, I just think Democrats would like and they believe that these new immigrants are going to be voters for them. And that's, you know, how it is. So um, I'm not so sure about that, by the way. I think when immigrants come here and they do assimilate and they do better, they, you know, they don't want to pay high taxes either. Right. So I think it's much more complicated than that. But I think that that's their reasoning. Wow. Very interesting. But not all Democrats are going along with it. Congressman Henry Cuellar, breath of fresh air, cut 48. I can understand some people are trying to be a little bit more politically correct, but if you look at what the statutes say, they, they do use the word alien. Uh, that's what the statute does. So unless the statute changes, uh, some of us will continue to be using the word uh, alien on that. I mean, that's just the uh, that's just what the statute says right now, and I don't think the statute is going to be changed. But I can understand the thinking of some folks. But you know, the thing is, that's an Hispanic Democrat uh, in Texas. So every once in a while, somebody doesn't drink the, uh, you know, the Kool-Aid and says, I can think on my own. Yeah, that's that's refreshing. I didn't even hear that before. So, yeah, I mean, it, this is the legal term in, in, in the law. It's a legal alien. Uh, alien just means someone from another country. We have all kinds. We have it all over a statute. So it's not some insulting term. Um so, you know, but they're always looking for ways to try to make it sound as if you are, you know, being heartless or you're, you know, or you don't want people here or et cetera, simply because you want the law followed. I mean, uh, you see what's happening to kids down there now. Is that something we want to happen to kids? I don't think so. 
not you know either side. Uh, not either side. It's just it's amazing to be on such separate pages uh, at this point, and I and I just think it works against the country. Let's also talk about something else. Another story came to light yesterday that made President Trump look 100 percent on the money. When word came out about bounties being put on Americans' heads after it, uh, in the, and it appeared in the New York Times by the Russians, they wanted immediately us to uh, make sure we don't pull out of Afghanistan, number one. And number two, make Russia pay the price. Well, upon further review months later, they found out that there really wasn't much intelligence to this. It was one detainee with some money who said he got it from Russia, but there was no way to verify this, and they haven't heard from any other areas. And you write a column saying this shows fake news is real. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, that that we have not just this story, but a slew of stories going back five years that either show – very poor journalistic skills and ethics and how stories are reported, or we see people being accomplices to bad stories for political purposes. Maybe it's a little bit of both. Maybe it's maybe it's the latter more than the other. But I um I think this story is a perfect example of how that works. When it was you know, it was election time, and, and, and there was there were a bunch of stories about how Donald Trump hated the troops, how he had, you know, said something about, you know, that they were suckers or whatever it was in the Atlantic. And then this story came out and it was always very thinly sourced. You have one unnamed source. What really makes this interesting, I think, and people might not miss this part, is that you have the New York Times reporting the story, and it's completely bogus. It turns out it's not true. But then you have CNN, I think it was, and the Washington Post saying that they have confirmed the stories with sources. <laughs> well, if the story didn't exist, how, who did they confirm it with? And why won't if, – if someone lied to them, why won't they burn that source, and why can't we hear about what the process was? When I worked at a newspaper reporting stories and not big stories like this, you know, I, had to, I had to answer to my editors. I had to, there had to be transparency. There had to be corrections. None of that goes on today. So if I kind of find it interesting about a few other stories. Number one, I'm watching uh, last weekend – when it goes on the front page in the New York Post that the, the founder of Black Lives Matter, or one of them, has four houses, multi-million dollar houses. This vowed Marxist who hates America and capitalism has four separate houses. Next thing you know, after a day, it's taken down off social media. And if you go to retweet it, your account gets frozen. And that's never adequately explained to this moment. And then we have a situation, obviously, with the Hunter Biden situation. He writes a book basically verifying that the, that the laptop seems to be his, and now everyone assumes it's his. He has no answer for it, but it didn't stop before the election. Everybody in big tech from Facebook to Twitter for freezing uh, that story out and the New York Post account out. There's been no accountability for this. Right. And it falls into the story we are just talking about. Yeah. It's like— you, you, there were there was far more there was far more journalistic integrity and better reporting done on that New York Post on those New York Post stories regarding Hunter Biden than there were on on a bunch of stories that everyone was passing around. In fact, some of the same people who were passing around those stories were saying, "Hey, listen, we can't talk about this Hunter Biden story because we don't trust the source or we don't we don't know if it's Russian disinformation." No, that's just bogus. I mean, they had the they had the laptop. Now we know it was no one had ever denied any parts of the, that story. They had an on the record source talking about uh, Joe Biden's brother and his son being involved in this sort of business scam, I guess, or scheme. So Tony Bobolinsky. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's. It's really disconcerting because you, now you – again, I mean I hate to go back to my time, but at a newspaper, I worked there, and I worked with many liberals, and they were biased. But this isn't bias anymore. This is activism. It's not just your, 
you know, you're, you're looking through a certain prism at the world. This is you going out there, shutting down some stories, accentuating other things that are turn out to be untrue or that you probably know are probably untrue. And that affects elections and that's some serious stuff. And um, I'm not sure, you know, it's, 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 it, not only do they destroy their own reputation, but they make it very difficult for us to believe anything they say, even if it's true. And that's a problem as well. Yeah. Last example, we see what's going on in New York with these elite schools and their uh, uh, critical race theory and trying to make white people apologize for their biases and let them know how they ruined the world, even at kids as low as uh, six and seven years old. So they, they, this, gets, this upsets one teacher who comes out and says, I'm tired of indoctrinating kids. Uh, they suspend that teacher. He's not coming back next year. And then one parent writes a very eloquent two-page, uh, two-pager on this elite school, uh, female school in New York, and how they will not let her. He will not let his daughter be indoctrinated. And it's not about the color of skin. This is an absolute abra- This is an absolute uh, insanity, essentially. And what is amazing, regardless of where how you feel about the story, Barry Weiss writes, who used to write for the New York Times, be an editor there. She's now with. Uh, Substack writes, how could the New York Times and Washington Post not do this story? How could this not be relevant when it costs $54,000 to go? The elite schools have a curriculum that's being attacked by parents and teachers, and they don't cover it. Final thought on that, David? They don't cover it because it's inconvenient. They don't cover it because they have staff members who don't care about it, who, who are fine with the other way, you know, or fine with indoctrinating kids. And they have a, they have editorial board staff members who are who are who 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 invent this kind of stuff, right? The sixteen nineteen project. They write this stuff. They come up with this stuff. So that's why they don't care. And it. Uh, and, I, you know, those people and that teacher was incredibly brave. It's hard to do that. Easy for people like ourselves, maybe pundits, to do that because we're protected or insulated. But it's probably very difficult for someone in that kind yeah. of environment to do it. Yeah. Just got to leave New York. David Arsani, always great to get your perspective. Always read your writing. His latest one is Fake News is Real and Biden Administration Ends Use of Assimilation. David, thank you. Uh, coming thank up you. next on FBN, uh, Stuart Varney. Watch us on FBN in just a moment. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Now, The Brian Kilmeade Show joins Fox Business's Varney and Company with Stuart Varney. Live on your radio and on Fox Business, here's Brian Kilmeade. Yeah, in about 20 seconds, we'll go on with Stuart Varney on FPN, one of the fast-growing stations in all the land uh, that, uh, of cable, of course. And we're going to be talking about Trump 2024. We mentioned that to Sean Hannity last night and also Maxine Waters. Uh, the consternation, the anger is growing towards her when the judge came out and said what he said yesterday about her, her actions, and how she might have single-handedly guaranteed an appeal should something go wrong with the Derek Chauvin case from the prosecution perspective. Let's listen. That's why the losses on the Nasdaq are not so bad. 10.51 on the button. That means it's time for Brian Kilmeade. First of all, Brian, I want you to listen to uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, uh, who may be censuring uh, House um, uh, Democrat uh, Congressman Maxine Waters. Roll tape, please. I know there's probably 10 to 15 who would love to vote that way. This has gone on too far and for too long. It's time to to say what is right and what is wrong, and everybody knows her action was wrong. All right, Brian, your turn. Is it possible that the Democrats will finally have the courage to call out 
kept Maxine Waters. Well, uh, hi, Stuart. So it looks like Speaker Pelosi came out yesterday and she said she has nothing to apologize for. That's in the spirit yeah. of the civil rights movement. We know that is a uh, she's full of it. I don't think she believes a word of it, and she shouldn't. But when that judge came out and said what he said yesterday, and basically said to the defense, you basically just got an appeal, thanks to Maxine Waters, that congresswoman from uh, California who decides to show up in the Midwest with security that the American taxpayer paid for so she can sit there and juice up and gin up the crowd while a unsequestered jury sits in the city after hours who saw what happened over the last nine days and then sees this woman in there saying it's going to get worse if you don't give the verdict that you want. It's almost mob-like, something you would see at one of the Godfather movies, starting to send a message to a jury that for some reason isn't sequestered, although they've been through a lot anyway. A couple of things. It's only two or three votes, Stuart. If two or three votes yeah. slip from Nancy Pelosi's hand, this could be actually go through through a censure. And what a message yes. that would be for future legislation, because a few of those seats are now open. Well, and, man, if Republicans don't work to get those seats back and retire Nancy Pelosi after something like this, I don't know what's going to motivate her. The Democrats are scared to death of 2022. And if they do censure Maxine Waters, she has to stand in the well of the House and the whole House has to vote. In other words, we will know where everybody stands. The last thing that Speaker Pelosi wants is a censure motion that reaches the floor of the House. True. Embarrassing. She never yeah. seems to get embarrassed. She always seems to slip away for this. I'm really not sure how she does it, but maybe this is the time when she realizes she has to do it. And now we have the new Green Deal being shoved down our throats yeah. because they know the clock is ticking on their agenda and they got to get it all in in a year and a half if it continues like this. But I would also keep in mind, too, is that... Uh, they have, a lot, they have a lot to answer for, do Democrats, and they have to stay on the same page. Chad Pergram reported yesterday, reported yesterday that made Democrats are incensed by her behavior and her actions. But let's see them stand up and speak up like yes. Ben Sass does against the president, Mitt yes. Romney does against the president, and a former president, and so does Liz Cheney. They're all conservatives. They were upset with the president. They spoke out. Where's the courage from Democrats? Right, right. Where is it, indeed? Last one for you, Brian. Uh, pre former President Trump, he's hinting at a 2024 presidential run. Watch this. Look, I got tremendous numbers. There's more popularity now than there was the day before the election because they see how bad things are at the border. I say this, I, I am looking at it very seriously, beyond seriously. All right, Brian, do you think he'll run? Do you think he should run? Well, I think his numbers would be in the high 50 if, if there was no January 6th speech and insurrection after. Yeah. Whether you think he would role he played, if he didn't do the speech, he just went out, gave the Bidens the tour of the White House, he would be at 58% right now. Having yeah. said that, I'm worried about that court case. New York has an agenda. I think it's so wrong, but it's about stuff that happened before he was president. I worry about that court case. And number two, the president's got to stay positive. Don't pick out enemies on the right. Don't worry about who the governor of Georgia is. Be positive for the next two years. Try to get some control of Congress back and then see where he stands. I will say this, Stuart, I think you back me up on this. Not one Republican runs against him. Not one, except for maybe, uh, you know, if somebody wants to run out there and get their 1%, get it. But almost everybody that wants to run that has a chance is a disciple or a fan or supporter of the president. Not one will run if he goes in. So they're going to wait to the last minute to see how the 77-year-old Donald Trump will feel at that time. Well said. It's his policies that are going to be supported by the Republicans. And they are easily, right? And they are, and they should be, too, because they were good policies. Absolutely.
Brian, you're all right. Thanks for joining us. See you again real Thank soon. Thank you, Stuart. All right, 1-866-408-7669. We got a few minutes, but what I thought was so true is what I thought when politics went out of the Maxine Waters behavior situation, Nancy Pelosi tried to push it to the side. But when Judge Peter Cahill said this after dismissing the jury, then I knew all bets were off. Cut to. I'm aware of the media reports. I'm aware that Congresswoman Waters was talking specifically about this trial and about the unacceptability of uh, anything less than a murder conviction and talk about being confrontational. But you can submit the press articles about that. This goes back to what I've been saying from the beginning. I wish elected officials would stop talking about this case, especially in a manner that is disrespectful to the rule of law and to the judicial branch and our function. I think if they want to give their opinions, they should do so in a respectful and in a manner that is consistent with their oath to the Constitution to respect a co-equal branch of government. Their failure to do so, I think, is abhorrent. And it puts everyone in danger. It was a message to the jury. Don't screw it up. You only have murder two and murder three and then manslaughter. You better pick the highest one possible. And I think in our system, that is too accepted. If it wasn't for this judge, if it wasn't for the defense attorney bringing it up, I think we would have swept it under the rug. Number two, the other thing that I find disturbing that we just got over is that city planner was fired for saying that police officer who made a clear mistake and it was a brutal one that cost somebody their life doesn't deserve due process. When he asked for due process, he got fired for asking due process for a police officer with a sterling record. This is Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show, and always keep it here. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach, it's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show coming to you from New York. Heard around the country, heard around the world. We've got a big hour coming your way. Eric Kaufman's going to be here, professor of politics at Birkbeck College, University of uh, London, affiliated with the Manhattan Institute. But he's got a, a, a great column where he has this thing called facts when it comes to policing and uh, minorities. And to push back against a media narrative, for some reason, they're jamming down our throats that uh, uh, white cops are killing black men and women at a dizzying rate. It's just not the fact. Arthur Idell will talk about the fact, the closing of the big case. Uh, Derek Chauvin, he is the officer whose knee was on the back neck of, uh, of George Floyd. George Floyd lost his life that day. What happened and who's at fault? And that nine-and-a-half-minute tape, man, it shows a lot. I've never seen an incident uh, that's so horrific that was caught from so many different angles. Defense actually used the tape and the prosecution used the tape to the surprise, to the surprise of many. Arthur Idell will put it in perspective. He's a brilliant attorney in his own right. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. This overall weakness is probably going to be a death sentence for this man because nobody in Russia is afraid of of Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. Nobody in the world is afraid of Joe Biden. And that's that's dangerous for us here at home. I think it's very dangerous for us here at home. And that's what Lindsey Graham's talking about. Everywhere everywhere you look where the world sees weakness. Uh, Biden, until he proves otherwise, Iran begging to get back into Vienna and those talks. 
Talks Russia, 150,000 troops in Ukraine. They don't worry about us. China now flying over Taiwan on a regular basis with warplanes. And we're out of Afghanistan for no apparent reason. Our enemies see a retreat. And the 78-year-old has done nothing to dissuade me uh, of that sense that they're weak and ill-prepared for the world that's testing them. Number two. I am prepared to compromise, prepared to see what we can do and what we can get together on. It's a big package, but there's a lot of needs. I've noticed everybody's for infrastructure. The question is, who's going to pay for it? Uh, that is my sense, and this is my belief, and I'm probably in the minority here. We're looking at a compromise. I think President Biden needs it. Those are the words of the president himself as he tries to hash out an infrastructure deal that will not look anything like the $2.3 trillion he's asking for. A second bipartisan session took place yesterday. The details on how much we will pay for it, who's going to pay for it, how we're going to pay for it, those are all things that could have this thing fall apart. We'll see. Number one. I'm aware that Congresswoman Waters was talking specifically about this trial and talk about being confrontational. I wish elected officials would stop talking about this case, especially in a manner that is disrespectful to the rule of law and to the judicial branch in our function. Uh, well, here we go. In the hands of the jury, that's where Derek Chauvin case stands in the death of George Floyd. Should a guilty verdict come at, on a, could come down, an appeal is a lock, thanks in part to the irresponsible borderline criminal actions of one Maxine Waters, in not my words, but the words of the judge himself as a nation braces for riots. We've been seeing it for the last 10 days because, you know, uh, coincidentally, there was a horrific act that took place just about two, uh, two weeks ago when Dante, when Dante Wright lost his life. A 20-year-old tries to run for the cops. Uh, the police officer tells he yells taser. Unfortunately, she had a gun in her hand. She shot him. He eventually died at 20 years old. There was a warrant out for his arrest from something in 2019, but no way did he such uh, suffer a justified fate. So now the officer literally has a fence and steel girders around her house, around her house to keep her safe. The guy, the uh, the city planner that said that he deserves, she deserves the the police officer due process is fired on the spot. The police chief is fired on the spot the next day. What the police chief do? We're going to put that in perspective, too, and we're going to talk about criminal justice. But um, we're going to see now, and we don't know. The verdict could come down. There's going to be word. The verdict's going to come down. The jury is meeting now. They met last night. They're meeting today. There'll be a little bit of notice. Everyone will come back in. They'll read the verdict, and here's uh, what the charges are, and here's what he's looking at. And we'll go over this with Arthur at the bottom of the hour, and I'll move on to uh, other topics. But murder two charges, not murder one. The way I understand it, uh, murder one is I sh- uh, Derek Chauvin showed up and wanted to kill him. Nobody thinks that. Murder two, did he intentionally commit an assault uh, that resulted in an unintentional death? He'll get 40 years if they say yes. Third degree, acted with depraved indifference to human life. Uh, they look at his face. They see the way he sat on him. They see that he was ignoring the shouts from the side. He'd get 25 years if the jury try, if the jury says there was no reasonable doubt there on that. Second-degree manslaughter acted with culpable negligence, which created unreasonable, unreasonable death. Ten years on that, probably out in three. What, what Maxine Waters is saying here is you better go for the max. Cut three. 
We're looking for a guilty verdict. If nothing does not happen, then we know uh, that we've got to not only stay in the street, but we've got to fight for justice. We've got to get more confrontational. We've got to make sure that they, they know that we need business. More confrontational. Now, think about this. The jury is not sequestered. They were told not to watch the news, but that was on everything, everything. You could watch, I mean, it was everything you said, ESPN. So you're going to tell me that no one said, wow, you got to see what this congresswoman just said. That is a shot across the bow to the jury. You better convict. Something like a mob would do, like the, a mobster would do. What are you doing down? You're 82 years old. You belong in Los Angeles, ignoring your district like you always do. Harmy Dillon weighed in. She's a founder of the Center for uh, for American Liberty, about what's at stake and now what will happen after, regardless of the verdict, perhaps, in many cities across America, cut 15. I think that most observers are going to say whatever the outcome of this verdict, and now the jury has the case, uh, there's likely to be violence and looting because we have an inflammatory situation in our country, and the race hustlers like Maxine Waters, like Al Sharpton, show up like, I don't know, vultures, uh, to to a scene and 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 they uh, take out their vengeance and their ideas on these communities and they leave and it's the minority communities who are going to suffer from this. There's no having a fair trial in a situation where you have a member of Congress calling for violence if the jury verdict isn't what it sh- what what she wants. And so that's total disrespect for our system of government. It's total disrespect for the judicial system. And it is a total disgrace to our to our government and, frankly, to the memory of the people she's trying to help. And just so you know, I know you listen to the show. You know I have a perspective on this. I don't think Derek Chauvin's injured. Uh, I've never heard anybody explain adequately that that was good police work. I'm never going to be spending, defending Derek Chauvin. I know nothing about him except for what I saw on tape there. And uh, I just sit there and watch if he just got up and George Floyd had lived. Not only does George Floyd get to live for his family and for his kids— and everything like that. We don't have three or four months, and it actually unrest around the world. So I have no sympathy for him. But just so you know, legally, for the non-lawyers out there, Maxine Waters did more to hurt the Democratic Party in this case than anybody else. Listen to the judge. First, Eric Nelson, Chauvin's defense attorney, saying, Basically, Judge, did you, he let the jury go and the, both sides rested. Basically, Judge, what did you, did you see Maxine Waters? Cut one. Now that we have U.S. representatives uh, threatening acts of, of, uh, of violence in relation to this specific case, uh, it's, it's mind-boggling to me, Judge. Well, I'll give you that Congresswoman Waters may have given you something on appeal that may result in this whole trial being overturned. Yeah, overturned. Okay, it was going to be appealed anyway, the way I understand it. Uh, Judge Cahill denied the request for a sequestered jury, denied the request for a dismissal of the case, but he gave us what he just gave us. He also should, you should note this, uh, Judge Cahill serves as a top deputy for Democrat Amy Klobuchar when she was the county prosecutor and was first appointed to the bench by Republican Governor Tim Pawlenty. The judge has won re-election several times in nonpartisan races. Could easily have avoided that, but he pointed right to her. And that, these Democrats would, would save, maybe save their majority if they would condemn her actions and say, don't link me with that. But they won't. I don't think. Can't speak for all. 
Meanwhile, coming up next, Eric Kaufman, a professor of politics. I want to find out, what do the stats say about the danger of being black in Minneapolis and in America uh, when it comes to law enforcement? Let's look at it when we come back. Expanding your knowledge base, it's Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. I don't think it's much of a debate. Um, you're less safe to be black in Minnesota than you are to be white right now on these things. And they're asking, are there some changes that we can make both legislatively and culturally that will start to reduce that? Uh, that is the view of the governor of Minnesota. Is it the fact Eric Kaufman is professor of politics at Birkbeck College, University of London, and is affiliated with the Manhattan Institute, did a study for them on this very topic. And he blames the media for a lot of this fake narrative that American is, America is a racist society. Eric, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Brian. As we wait on this verdict, it is certainly, uh, sadly, going to cause some violence, regardless of what it is, murder two, murder three, and uh, irresponsible lawmakers like Maxine Waters is trying to ensure that by doing what she did over the weekend. Uh, I want to find out if you would tell, I wonder if you would tell our audience what you think the story is. Is it true what the governor said that you're twice as likely to get uh, uh, shot by a by a uh, officer if you're black than if you're white in America? It really isn't. Uh, if you control for uh, interactions with the police, for poverty, um, for the likelihood of killing an officer or having a gun, then no. It's essentially, the studies all tend to show that the risk of being shot uh, in, an, in a similar situation is basically identical or, or, if anything, is slightly higher for, for white suspects. How did you do your study for a Manhattan Institute? What did they ask you to do? What did you do? Um, well, what I was interested in was in people's perceptions and how those aligned with reality. And, and what I found, in a way, was that, in fact, people's perceptions of, of police violence and, and racism uh, in particular was, in fact, way off base. So, so uh, one of the key questions I asked people was, um, is a young black man more likely to be killed by police or uh, by a, uh, in a car accident? And, and the statistics are hard numbers, right? So this is not actually about uh, perception. It's, 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 we know that it's about 10 times more likely that a young black man will be killed, by, uh, killed in a car accident than killed by a police bullet. So, so that's the fact. And we wanted to know, well, to what extent do people get this question right or wrong? Turns out that... Um, if you believe that white Republicans are racist, which is sort of about you know sixty percent to two thirds of white liberals and black liberals, uh, amongst black liberals it's about ninety five percent got the question wrong, and amongst white liberals seventy percent. So this is a, a massive misperception problem that's caused mainly by uh, a combination of media and, uh, and ideology. The media is pushing this narrative. When did this start taking place? And what did you notice? Up until 2014, this wasn't the case. You say one result of the American share, Americans saying that race relations are good, which were stable at around 70 percent from 2002 to 2014. Most Americans said race relations were good. What has happened since? 
Well, those numbers, which were, and again, uh, that the say, this was largely true for African Americans and white Americans, saying the race relations were good. Um, this then sort of dropped almost in half after about 2014, after Ferguson and and uh, you know Trump's election and, and various other things. Uh, and, and so it was only sort of 30 to 40 percent saying race relations were good. Now that actually tracks uh, the mention of terms like racism and white supremacy in major newspapers, such as the New York Times and Washington Post, and also new uh, online websites like BuzzFeed, we see an explosion in, in mention of these terms on uh, databases and big data. So th that is actually what occurs, something called the Great Awakening, according to Matthew uh, Iglesias, formerly of Vox. So this explosion in coverage and mention of this term seems to be linked to uh, a doubling in, in the share of white liberal Americans uh, and, and, and to some extent non-white liberal Americans saying that racism is a big problem in the United States. That, that almost doubles between 2015 and 2020. And so this explosion in the narrative, but of course that's not matched by any reality on the ground. We have a continued increase in support for interracial marriage. There's only 10% now that oppose it. Um, and the uh, rate of police shooting of, of African-American suspects has dropped 60 to 80% since the late 1960s. So while the reality looks more and more positive, the perceptions are moving in the other direction. So it's, so it's really, the media is almost, would you say pushing this and the gap between Democrats and Republicans is is widening. So we're sitting when you talk about a polarized America, you just outlined it with pure numbers. Yeah, I mean, what's amazing, actually, if you look at this question of racism being a very big problem in America, um, is that it's your uh, uh, liberals, uh, white liberals, who, see, who go from sort of 40 to 80 percent between 2015 and 2020, saying that is a big problem, whereas, um, you know, white conservatives, it remains as it has been all the way back to 2000 at, at sort of 30 to 40 percent. So the big difference is really in that white liberal group who go through this great awakening process as a result both of social media, but also um, of this new narrative that's coming through in major publications, such as the New York Times and Washington Post. And that's something to do. This is a new burst of activism, really, that, that comes is linked also to what's happening on university campuses. And that's really shaping the perceptions of a lot of people, uh, particularly on the left. What's the view from England? Um, well, in England, we had, you know, there's echoes of this. There were, there, you know, there was the BLM protest, but there's nothing, uh, nothing like the same intensity, I guess, of the narrative. I mean, the narrative is there, but of course, there are also far fewer guns and there are very few uh, police killings. So that does make a big difference. But I would say the ideology uh, of sort of seeing more racism uh, than can be, and seeing and noting a rise in racism when actually the numbers are all moving in the other direction. Uh, that narrative is here, too, and the, the polarization around that is here, too, and we saw that with a recent report from a government-appointed commission which said that there was not uh, institutional right. racism in Britain, and there was a huge, enormous hue and cry over that. So, I mean, when you have the 1619 Project, when you have this big push to take down America's past and apologize for it, when you got critical race theory out there, it's almost as if there's this invisible force working to rip our society apart that wasn't there 10 years years ago. 
Well, I think you've had a sort of – it wasn't there 10 years ago. We've had this great awakening, this this surge of, of interest. But I would say that it's building on a foundation of kind of radical new left ideology that, that was there with political correctness and Afrocentrism, for example, and multiculturalism. So you already had a base to work from, but it's gone more radical, you're right, since, since about 2014, 15. Uh, and we can see that in the data very, very clearly. So we're in this sort of third awakening, I would call it. Of progressive activism, and that's sort of driving a lot of the things we see. Do you see any hope in this? Uh, that, you know, you see how we got here through the numbers. Do you see how we can get out of here through the numbers? Um, the problem at its core is that, um, as John McWhorter uh, has mentioned, there's something called a religion of anti-racism, where certain racial categories have become religious idols and anything that's seen to be. So, so for example, and, and until we deal with that problem of the sacredness of race, uh, which is putting it into a disproportion, it's not contextualized properly amongst all the other problems, all the other inequalities that exist in society. It's just seen as a holy thing that you can't uh, run afoul of, and that leads to the cancellation, the overreaction, uh, the emotional uh, effect. So, I mean, it's just, you can just compare Chauvin and, and Floyd, that that fits the narrative, whereas the you know the very similar death of a white suspect, Tony Timpa, in, in Dallas in 2016, there's video of that, there's no mob, uh, there's no protest, nothing. So it just doesn't fit the same narrative. We have to deal with this narrative, which has the sacred quality. Eric Kaufman, thanks so much. Uh, read his column. It'll make total sense. At E.P. Kaufman. K-A-U-F-M. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate it. Coming to us from England. Arthur Idala next. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Now that we have U.S. representatives uh, threatening acts of violence in relation to this specific case, it's, it's mind-boggling to me, Judge. Well, I'll give you that Congresswoman Waters may have given you something on appeal that may result in this whole trial being overturned. That was the, the judge yesterday. Uh, after the jury was dismissed, the closing arguments were given, obviously. They were given their instructions. They left. And then the defense attorney goes, uh, listen, can we just forget about this whole thing? Uh, we're going to get to appeal. But Maxine Waters just basically tried to intimidate a jury who I begged you to sequester, and you didn't. Arthur Idell, you've been in that spot before as a defense attorney with tough cases. This might have been one of the toughest ever if Eric Nelson tries to explain uh, Derek Chauvin's acts. What did you think about what the judge's comments said about Maxine Waters? Did it surprise you? Um, pleasantly surprised me, to be honest with you. Hello, Brian. How are you? Um, I thought overall the defense attorney did a, a, a pretty, pretty really good job through the whole trial. I mean, it was really David versus Goliath. They had, I don't even know, 16 <laughs> prosecutors some of whom weren't even prosecutors. They were signed. They, like, volunteered because they want to see this guy, you know, strung up as high as they could, which is not really the way I operate. You know, if you're a DA or a prosecutor, then you are, and that's your team. You don't start bringing people. What are these, the Yankees, that they're going out to the free agents and bringing a, a, a hitter? But anyway, 
Um, the only thing I would have done if, if, if I was the defense attorney is I would say, Your Honor, I would like you to speak to each juror individually and ask them if they heard what Congresswoman Waters said. And let's see what, you know, let's see what, what their reaction was if they heard it. And Brian, I'm not talking out of school here. I did the exact same thing when I tried the Harvey Weinstein case. There was a lot of stuff that went that took place on the media. There was things that people heard and should yeah. have heard. And we asked the judge, and he did. He spoke to each and every juror individually. Did you hear anything about this? Did you? Hear? And you know, then you at least it's in the record. Had Eric Nelson not brought that up, it would it would not been able to have been. Um, it would not been able to have been uh, part of the appeal. Because you can only argue things in the appeal that are on the record. So that was why he did that, just so everyone understands. The reason why he brought it up is if Chauvin gets convicted, they now have an issue for appeal regarding what she said. Do I think they're going to overthrow the case because of that? No, they can't overthrow the case because of that, because no juror said, oh, yeah, I heard that. And I voted to convict him because I was afraid Maxine Water was going to tell everyone to up uh, the insanity well, if if you know if I didn't find him guilty. Arthur, two things: How do you feel about the judge's decision not to sequester the jury? And number two, the judge came back and said, "I told them not to watch the news." He came back and said, "It was everywhere." I mean, how could you have missed with the the riots that were taking place because of Dante? Right. Uh, tragic loss of life. The 20 year old who tried to run for the cops got shot because the police officer confused a gun for the taser uh, tragedy all around. But that was just miles away. And then everyone was talking about both cases and they saw the violence. So do you understand what do you understand why the judge didn't just sequester the jury? Do I know this for a fact? No. But can I tell you about New York State? It all comes down to money, Brian. It's very expensive to sequester a jury for three weeks. You're paying for everything, and most the problem, probably the most expensive part is all the overtime you're paying for everyone. So um, sadly, that's it's just not done. Listen, I'm pleasantly surprised he sequestered the jury while they're deliberating. That was standard operating procedure in New York State on every murder case. The jury was sequestered. They no longer do that. Straight up because of budget cuts. Straight up. The hotels, the buses, the meals, the court officers, the clerks, all the overtime. So now juries deliberate usually just from, you know, during regular working hours. So what does that do? That exposes them when they get in the taxi cab to the headlines that says, oh, this evidence came out or the defense successfully blocked that evidence from coming out, et cetera, et cetera. So as I said, Brian, my father taught me this a long time ago. Our system of justice may be the best system in the world, but it is far from perfect. Exactly. Uh, so I want to go just to the defense system, the pedestrian point of view. They had a lengthy rebuttal. The defense emphasized 17 minutes leading up to where Floyd lost his life, that he took illicit drugs, that he resisted arrest. And when several owners tried to get him into the squad car, uh, Nelson told jurors to look at the totality of the circumstances. Don't let yourself be less misled by a single still frame image. What did you see with the buildup? And I know this is a hard case. I'm just looking from the defense perspective. George Floyd, looking at this, what what helps the defense about the buildup? So what he did effectively, in my opinion, and it depends on where your sympathies and empathies lie, but from my opinion, the way the prosecutor showed the video that we all know of that's on the news everywhere with the knee on the neck for the 929, he showed all those minutes before where there is no arguing that George Floyd is a large man. 
both in t- height and weight. He's a very muscular man. And he was clear. And one of those police officers, I believe, who was a rookie, is no was, was no little guy himself. And he was struggling with him. And uh, at one point, um, Floyd asked, "He goes, oh, I got claustrophobic. Will you come in the car with me and roll the windows down?" The police officer says, "Okay, I will. I will." But it's not that George Floyd says, "Okay, I'll acquiesce and I'll go in." So what he kept doing, the process, the defense attorney must have showed the tape ten different times in his closing argument of uh, the struggle and how Chauvin comes on the scene and there's basically two police officers, if not three, who, who really can't control this guy. Um, and then, you know, he they get him down on the floor and, and that's, so he, kept, but he kept showing everything, the way he was kicking the door, the way he was had he was foaming at the mouth. He highlighted things. Look at the foam coming out of his mouth. One of the cops says he must be on drugs or something. So, I mean, he did the best that he could with what he had. I, do I think it's going to be enough, Brian? I don't. Um, I think there'll be some sort of a conviction here. Right. Um, I don't. I don't think it's a murder. If you, if if you're a, a legal scholar, and I'm not saying I am, but if you really look at the law, it's really not a murder three. A murder three is like driving your car in the middle of of Times Square on New Year's Eve at 100 miles an hour. You're not looking to kill or hurt anyone, but you do, and it's an action that would hurt the general public. It's a weird law. That's the one that was originally thrown out, and then the Court of Appeals in that, in that state made them put it back in. It's either, in my opinion, the murder two, which is while he's assaulting him, and they argued that the assault took place, especially those last four minutes when Floyd was not moving. So while he's assaulting him, he causes his death. Or it's the manslaughter count, which is while he is uh, performing these actions, they're so negligent that a reasonable person would know mm-hmm. it could cause serious physical injury or death. I, excuse me for uh, this naive lack of legal background question, but can you get murder to and manslaughter and not? What you're saying is you can go without third degree murder. You go. Yes, you can. I, you can I, get murder I, to I, and manslaughter. Is that what you're saying? So, but you. But, but this one seems so perfect to describe his attitude. Acted with depraved indifference to human life. I mean, the guy looked nonchalant as everyone's saying he can't breathe. The guy's screaming up, "Please!" But if you right. But if you read, if you read the law, and that's why it, went, it was thrown out. The trial judge threw it out, and then the the appellate law court put it in. Depraved indifference is what I just said. Is like taking a car and driving in the middle of, of Times Square on New Year's Eve. It's not putting your neck on someone's knee. That's not an action that someone would think was going to. No, no, that was not an. If you say, if I say. Brian, tell me three things that would definitely kill someone. One of those three things would not be putting a knee on somebody's neck. That wouldn't kill somebody typically. And by the way, the evidence kind of showed that there were contributing factors. George Floyd had an enlarged heart. He was on a ton of, of drugs. It was It's the totality of those circumstances that causes death. If you listen to all the medical experts, the problem for the defendant is the law is he just has to have a substantial role, not the only role. So it's, you know, it's, if that knee to the neck and, and that stress that he caused him laying there for those extra four minutes con- substantially contributed to his death, then he's guilty. So you're saying that, uh, do you think it was proven by the defense, had he not taken drugs, had this been an arrest, he would be alive? Well, that's, I, you know, I'm not a jury. I didn't see every second of it, but that was certainly their argument. Had he not had, had taken the drugs, yeah. had he not had an enlarged heart, had he not have 80% of one of his arteries clogged, if he was a 100% healthy person in this, under the same circumstances, um, 
then he would still be alive today. That's, I mean, that's what they're arguing. That's what they're – look, and Brian, let's face it. I've heard a lot of pundits that you're just hoping for one juror. One juror usually caves in to get a hung jury. You're really hoping for three. You want to get three people who say, I see that there's reasonable doubt. These are the reasonable Will doubts. You I'm know? going to articulate them. Sometimes you know, sometimes you don't. So in the Harvey Weinstein trial, the jury gave a verdict, and they asked for a bus to pick them up in the back, and they got taken to a site that no one knew of, and they didn't talk to anyone. The murder case they did before that, the jurors stayed in the jury room for like two hours and, and spoke to everyone, the judge, the prosecutor, myself, my team. Right. So you don't know. Um, you know, There are times when you know what the count is, and, and, and you know, they'll tell you, and there's other times you'll never know. So my guess is these jurors disappear, and then they, you know, I'm not. No way. Usually yeah. they wind. Usually they wind up popping up, depending on who offers them the most money. Whether it's you know a TV show or a, a periodical, they start off saying, "I don't want anything to do with this. I never want to hear it again." Until there's a check for twenty thousand dollars that says, "Well, sit down with this interview for us." I mean, Brian, I know you would never do something like that, but believe it or not, there are entities out there that do pay for interviews. Yeah, yeah they do it in, in other ways. Uh, so here is Maxine Waters saying something that I think is totally inappropriate. Cut three. We're looking for a guilty verdict. If nothing does not happen, then we know uh, that we've got to not only stay in the street, but we've got to fight for justice. We've got to get more confrontational. We've got to make sure that they, they know that we mean business. So you like that the judge brought it up, but when, if you hear that, Arthur, and if you were controlling that case, are you thinking to yourself, what are you, what are you thinking when you hear a sitting uh, a chairman of uh, of a House committee at 82 years old out in the middle of the, this riot. Well, I mean, look, the, uh, the judge, typically judges don't say anything like that. I mean, he did say for in the world I live in, that's like the judge really going out there. I mean, he's him, him saying that, you know, I wish she would she she may give you know, a cause for appeal. I wish the, the politicians would stop talking about this. But he has no control over her. It's not like the judge can go and, and he, he, she's I know, not. But what are you thinking? If you're a defense attorney, are you thinking exactly what that defense attorney thinking? Or are you thinking as an American this is so out of line. How could she possibly be this naive? Uh, How, so, much, so much of this is so out of line, Brian. How about the fact that they award $27 million to the deceased family the week before a trial is going to start? I mean, come on. What, it was there that much of an emergency that to write out a check and make this big, huge press conference? You don't think that has some sort of influence on the jury pool? Give me a break. Of course it does. So there's a lot of things here that were, were not, you know, that aren't perfect. But I started off this conversation by saying it's not perfect. I will compliment the judge, though, Brian. Overall, from I, and I saw a lot of this trial. The judge did a very good job. He more or less called balls and strikes, which is what he's supposed to do. And I also thought the prosecutor did a good job. They weren't overzealous. Yeah. They didn't go over the top. They didn't go crazy. I mean, they went a little heavy-handed with all the experts. But they needed that because they didn't really have their own medical examiner Agreeing, the medical examiner for for the state, the one who actually did the autopsy, didn't come out and say yes. It's clear his neck bones are broken. The thing around his throat is broken. The knee to the neck causes death. Period. Amen. He did not say that at all. So they needed to call all these other experts, and they did. Yep. And um, I think everyone here, overall, this was a gro- a very good demonstration of how a criminal trial should function in the United States of America. And I get, I do take my hat hat off to Eric Nelson because he had a huge task. Right. He gets death threats. He gets horrible emails. 
he said yesterday on TV, thousands a day. And he basically did this all alone. I mean, he had people behind him, but he did every cross-examination, the opening and the closing. Brian, that's exhausted. As someone who has done it, yeah. it is exhausting. So he'll sleep well no matter what the verdict is because he did his best, and that's all you can ask for. Right, and then Derek Chauvin, we'll, we'll find out what's going to happen with him. Uh, real quick, Dante uh, Wright lost his life at 20 years old when uh, there was a warrant out for his arrest. He was pulled over for a traffic violation. They find out there's a warrant for his arrest. They go to arrest him. He gets back into his car to drive away. A police officer with 26 years experience pulls out, yells taser, pulls out her gun by mistake, shoots him. He eventually dies. She has been charged. We understand that. Her house has been surrounded now with fencing and cement barriers. Uh, how much trouble is she in? Can she possibly get a fair trial in this environment if it stays there? Well, I mean, look, this is not a case that you go to trial. I mean, she admits to what she did, right? I mean, so what's the trial? I mean, really, what is the trial? She admits in, at, at the second it happens. She says, oh, S word, you know, I shot him. And, and she pulls out before they're screaming, taser, taser, taser. So she obviously, her intent is obvious. She's intending to taser him. And she, so this is what in New York, what you call criminal negligent homicide, which is basically what she's, what she uh, is um, uh, charged with there. She's charged with the same manslaughter count that Chauvin is. And which is, you're, you're, you do something that you, a reasonable person knew or should have known would kill somebody or cause them serious physical injury. And the bottom line here is, even though it was a mistake, it's a mistake that you're just you're not allowed to make, Brian. I mean, you just you just can't anywhere, any time, any city, any yeah, point. You just can't. You just can't. You can't mistakenly kill somebody. You know, gotcha. and you, there's got to be ramifications. There are certain mistakes that are forgivable. Most mistakes are forgivable or correctable. This is one that's really mm. not neither of those. Right. And I feel bad for the woman, but I mean, and, and the, obviously the kid shouldn't have been driving. He shouldn't be driving away. But, you know, he shouldn't be dead either. And his family, you right. know, obviously is devastated. So uh, Arthur, this is one of those cases that stinks. All right, Arthur, we'll have you when the verdict comes down, okay? Arthur, thanks so much. Great best, insight. Brian. Thank you. All right, now you're the best. Let's get that straight. And I, I'm always right. Uh, back in a moment. Giving you everything you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. They've handled this with great dignity and no ambiguity. Ambiguity. You help me there, Pete. Ambiguity. Ambiguity. That's better. Thanks, Pete. Wait a second. You guys edited that one in. You actually helped me, Eric. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Every once in a while you get stuck in a word. Let's find I out this. I have to admit, I was, I was just, I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> Let's find out there's more to know. More to know. Sponsored by Oxford Gold Group. Call today to learn how you can protect your retirement and savings account. 833-600-GOLD. That's 833-600-G-O-L-D. So I don't get this. I'm trying to download my, my Parler app. I still can't do it, but the Parler says they're letting, uh, the Apple says they're letting Parler back on the App Store. The decision included in a letter sent to Congressman Ken Buck and Mike Lee, Paul's interim CEO, Mark Meckler, uh, thanked the two legislators for their efforts in a statement. They helped facilitate Paul's relaunch of the App Store. So now, President Trump will have a place to go. Everyone will have a place to go. Do you try to download this? No, I haven't, but uh, I maybe it'll take another day or two for it to fully uh, kick in. Yeah, I, th- I had thousands of followers. Maybe a lot of people there. trying to do it at the same time, too. All right, maybe. Meanwhile, next, uh, President Biden's White House reportedly weighing nicotine reduction in all cigarettes. Can't see that. That's bad. I'm sure people are protest. Next. 
Project Veritas founder James O'Keefe files defamation lawsuit because they banned him from Twitter. Did some great work finding out what CNN's real agenda was. They don't like to see that, do they? Next, a South Florida restaurant buys robots because they can't staff the place. Mr. Q Crab House in Hollywood, Florida, invested three food service robots, according to Fox 23. The electronic workers now have been performing various tasks assigned to servers and other frontline workers. The business owner, Joy Wang, reportedly decided to invest $30,000 a robot. How sad is that? It is, but will the robot be able to say ambiguity? That's the question. It all comes back to callback, comedic callback. Absolutely it. But I'll tell you what. Hey, America, get back to work. (laughs) Everybody's laughing. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.